Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, turn again with me to Kings, 2 Kings 18, page 308, I believe. Question, is it normal for maturing Christians, because I don't know if there's such a thing as a mature Christian, is it normal for maturing Christians to struggle with trusting God? Silly question, right? Of course, of course, absolutely, everyone struggles with trusting God sometimes. We can, you see, we can believe that God is trustworthy, and yet when certain things hit us, we struggle to trust our trustworthy God. Today, we continue to look at the life of King Hezekiah, who we've discovered is really uh, the godliest, one of the godliest kings of Israel and Judah's almost 500-year history by this time. And we meet him at a time where he stumbles in trusting God, and uh, we're in good company. Just a little bit of a review in uh, chapter 18, we actually first introduced Hezekiah back in August before our series on our core values. But there's an amazing summary statement of his life starting in verse 5, 18 verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. That's like a caption on his life. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the command that the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. The parenthesis would be like his dad who tried to appease Assyria. So he was a man who trusted in the Lord. And and as we see that statement, it seems to contradict where we're going to pick up the story in verse 13, where he didn't trust in the Lord. But you see, verse 5 is God's overall commendation of his faith. And what we see today is one of those exceptions to his faith in God. And we all get it. We trust God until we don't. We trust God until certain crises hits us or shakes us and we have weak points. What, was, what happened to Hezekiah? Verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign... Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah, that's his kingdom, and captured them, all of them. And we will find him holed up in Jerusalem, the only one at this point, it seems, not taken. He had rightly, back in verse 7, rebelled against the king of Assyria and stopped paying the tribute. And surely we can tell that Hezekiah knew that would mean war would come. In fact, what is remarkable is to read how well Hezekiah put feet to his faith and prepared for the looming war with Assyria. Second Chronicles tells us how well he prepared. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended, hadn't happened, intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city. And they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water? 
they said. That leaves us a little bit wondering what all has happened, but we pretty much know now what happened. He built a tunnel. There's, you could go to Jerusalem now and see Hezekiah's tunnel. You can Google it, in fact, and do a video tour if you want to. And in this tunnel, in 1880, 140 years ago, they found an, an inscription that goes back to the time of Hezekiah, in which describes him uh, and his people, uh, Judah, building it, and in fact, even describes to some degree how they built it. The situation was basically this, that you know, Jerusalem is a, a, a walled city, and they know that Assyria is going to come and attack them. And there was one spring that fed Jerusalem, the Gihon Spring, and would bring fresh water into the city. So a besieging army could, outside the walls, take advantage of all that water, and they would have water, and they could actually do something to block the water so they wouldn't have fresh water in the city. You can see that tactical advantage they would have. And so Hezekiah, in preparation for the war, put his engineers to work at an ingenious plan. They blocked off, as we saw, they blocked off access to the water outside the city and bored a tunnel through solid rock a third of a mile to provide that same water to come and give them fresh water during a siege inside the city. Very smart. Modern engineers today marvel at how seven centuries B.C., these Jewish engineers bored this tunnel and in fact, that inscription, the ancient inscription, describes how they did it. They came from one end to the other and met in the middle without any modern equipment to figure out how they would meet in the middle. The inscription says they did it that way. The markings of the pickaxes show that they were doing it this way, and it worked. God used ingenious people to help prepare for that. Twice, you see, twice as many people could be at work to get the thing done twice as fast when you're building like a, it's about a 10-foot maybe tunnel. How did he prepare? We see he prepared with building a tunnel, but there's more. He prepared for this war by repairing the walls of Jerusalem, building some towers in the Jerusalem, reinforcing the hill that leads up to the walled city. He expanded the army's weapons and shields. He reorganized the army's leadership. And he encouraged the people to trust the power of God while the Assyrians had only the power of their army. It's remarkable. He did everything physically and spiritually. This is all in Second Chronicles. This last section is especially important to us to understand him. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said, could you put it any more perfectly when you're giving spiritual encouragement to those you lead? He did everything right. And then his faith did a flip-flop, we will now see. How could that be? Except that we know this describes really every Christian ever. The 14th year, King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. He knew it would happen, and then it happened. He lost control of his whole kingdom, essentially. We know this 
attack was actually in 701 BC, not only from this, but from the actual records that exist from Sennacherib, king of Assyria at the time, in which he specifies that he conquered 46 cities in Jerusalem, in Judah. One of those surviving annals of Sennacherib say this, quote, that he had shut up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird, caged him. Basically, that's it. If all you got left is a capital city, you're stuck inside that wall. So, so how does Hezekiah respond, the one, who, the one who encouraged everybody to trust God because, you know, we've got God and they got nothing? Verse 14, so King Hezekiah of Judah sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish, that is, he's defeating one of Judah's cities at the moment, I have done wrong, withdraw from me and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. No, Hezekiah, we say. You, you, you urge people to trust God. We are so disappointed in you. Hezekiah. But then we realize how like him we are. Can you imagine how disillusioned he was? Especially after all he had done in these intervening years. Back in verse 9, we learned that in the fourth year of his reign, so ten years earlier, he had seen that Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom and took them off captive. He knew that this was just something waiting to happen. And he had prepared and he had done the tunnel thing. In fact, if you rewind back, he was the one who at the beginning of his reign at 25 years old says, I will not be like my dad, who was ungodly and wicked. I will be different. And in that first year, he opened the doors of the temple and restored worship. And then last week we saw how he was the one who reestablished also, it seems like in that first year, the Passover feast and led all these people in an amazing time of worship. And then he did everything necessary. He, he destroyed the high places. He took down the altars and, and he, he resisted. He wouldn't pay tribute and he prepared the army and he prepared the, the wall and he did the tunnel and he did everything right. And God still allowed that they came and took all of his cities but one. I think we get it. This, this is not a contradiction to his faith in verse 5. This is a significant test of his faith. It seems that the fear of Assyria would be a king's weak point in faith, right? Threatening that deepest thing within him. I don't know what yours is. Is it the C word of cancer? That greatest fear? You've got an appointment to check that thing. Your job? Uh, the market killing your retirement funds, your teenager, will he really love God or not? He says he doesn't, doesn't know God, doesn't believe God, does, your child's health. I mean, there, there are, yeah, there's very tender areas of our life where we can know that God is trustworthy. We say that we trust God, but in the moment we're a wreck. I'd encourage you, don't, don't absorb yourself in self-accusing thoughts that Satan wants you to think because I'm convinced that faltering in our faith is actually how God grows our faith. He knows our faith needs tuning. He knows we often need uh, humbling 
to know that we've not arrived yet spiritually. And so we have this raw version of what exactly Hezekiah went through when he took his eyes off God and he put his eyes on his own resources and started handing out gold and silver trying to delay the thing he feared most. Of course, as we would expect, Assyria took the money but didn't keep their promise to stay away because they intended to totally dominate everything within their reach. And so the money was wasted And in verse 17, we see that the king of Assyria sends three officials to say, surrender Jerusalem to. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander. If you have the word Rabshakeh, that's the Hebrew word. It could be a name or it could be a position. We're not sure. With a large army from Lachish, where they were fighting, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, kind of saying, you're next. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped in the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, and they called for the king. Well, the king sends three of his people, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. Verse 19, the field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says, on what are you basing your confidence of yours? And he begins to ridicule, essentially ridicule, the God of Israel and Hezekiah and tell them, you basically have no chance. Here's a kind of a summary of what he all said. Just go ahead and advance to that next slide, if you could. Number one, you're depending on Egypt. They're losers, verse 21. Take a look. Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintering reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. It's like he says, you, you, you're depending on a, on, a, on a cane, and the cane is going to break. So that's no good. Secondly, you're depending on God, but what did, what did Hezekiah do about the gods of Israel? Verse 22, if you say, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars King Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah in Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? You see, the pagan Assyrian leaders felt like uh, all gods are equal, and so why did Hezekiah destroy the high places and the altars and the idolatry? You, you wiped out your own gods. Of course, that's bad theology. Verse 23, the third thing was, if I, if I gave you 2,000 horses, we would still win. Verse 23, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. So he's basically mocking them. And the, the last one, end of verse 25, is, uh, is one of the worst. He says, the Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it, so God told me to defeat you. Absolute lie. Here we go. So, you're depending on Egypt, you're depending on your God. If I gave you 2,000 horses, the Lord your God told me to destroy your city. The speech was very, very intimidating. And it's so intimidating that the three representatives of Hezekiah in verse 26, Eliakim, Joah, etc., said, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. Be quiet. Because remember, we're told they're standing right outside the wall. He says, don't talk in Hebrew, talk in Aramaic. That was more the, the commercial language and not all the Hebrews understood. 
course, that didn't go over well. The commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? So he didn't pipe down at all. In fact, he spoke very loud and inappropriately. Confrontation gets even more intense. Now, starting in verse 29, he begins to attack and undermine Hezekiah the king himself. This has to hurt. When the news of this got to him, this had to really hurt. Because he basically said, don't let Hezekiah deceive you, in verse 29. Don't let, in verse 31, don't listen to Hezekiah. End of verse 32, do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you. When he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arapad? Where are the gods of Seraphim, Hena, and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Get the boast. This last one is where the king of Assyria and his messengers crossed the line with God. In fact, Second Chronicles says it this way, they spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of other peoples of the world, the work of human hands. They acted like the God of Israel was just another God. So we see Hezekiah blew it, trying to bribe and pay them off. We see he took off he took his eyes off of God, and we've all done it. We see he gambled on a God substitute. But this is the grace of God we're about to see. God's grace stepped in even though he failed in faith. Ever experienced that? Even though our faith is deflated and we blew it, God steps in by his grace. Here's a little spoiler because God's going to defeat Assyria. But he's going to defeat Assyria not because of Hezekiah's faith, but in spite of his lack of faith. You know why? Because God's glory is at stake. Sometimes God honors our faith. Always God's going to honor himself. And, um, you know, sometimes I think we pray as if our faith is the only thing keeping God from doing this great thing. If only I could conjure up enough faith, then God would do this amazing miracle as if, if it's all about us and our faith. I think that's silly theology because our God has his own mind, his own plan, and he's going to do what accomplishes his glory. So if we're praying wisely, yes, we can ask for all the desires of our heart, but we must always be praying for his glory to be accomplished. Theodore Minode said, his grace is always at the service of his glory. He pours out his grace at the service of his glory. He's always going to do that which glorifies himself. Are you, are you willing to pray for God's glory in your situation? Are you scared to pray for God's glory? As if, think about that if you're like, I'm afraid to ask God's will and God's glory. Because you better rethink whether you believe God is good and Satan is evil or somehow God is evil and your selfish controlling plan would be a good thing? Do you have a defective view of God and his goodness that if you pray for his glory and his will? He, I mean, you read your scriptures and is God better at good outcomes? 
or when we take control ourselves. Hezekiah tried to take control of the outcome, and it wasn't pretty. Verse 30, so after all these threatening words, it says in verse 36, and this is good, but the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. There was, there was something of the residual impact of Hezekiah's otherwise good faith in God. And he said, don't talk to him. Um, you don't need to defend God. You don't need to argue. There are times to be silent. This wasn't the time for the Israelites to preach a sermon to the threatening Assyrians about, you know, how God had parted the Red Sea and David and Goliath and be quiet and wait. The problem wasn't solved. The threat was as real as it will ever get because, I mean, these people of Jerusalem probably had cousins and siblings out in the cities of Judah that had now been conquered and occupied. So if you can picture... You know, being in a village of Ukraine while other villages have been taken over by the Russians, you know, it, it's this impending doom. Many Port Washington High School students, including some of our own recently, were uh, locked down in tight rooms with some very real fears. God never told us to deny our fears. But he says sometimes you just have to wait. Wait and see what God will do. And we don't always wait perfectly at all. Hezekiah didn't. But you know this, somehow the waiting is the crucible in which God grows our faith. So what will Hezekiah do this time? He'd already spent his money. That didn't work. Verse 37 says how these three messengers come to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Verse 1, when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, Shebna, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah of Amos. We better check with God on this this time. <laughs> Good move. They told him, they told Isaiah, this is what the Hezekiah says. This is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace as when children come to the point of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom the, his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he, God, will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, he's asking Isaiah, pray for the remnant that still survives. So, so King Hezekiah has been so distraught that he actually hears this message of threat and he takes off his purple robes and puts on his brown burlap sackcloth, the signs of usually grief, but also sometimes repentance. And this may be a mixture of those because indeed it's a time of distress, the point of birth and no strength, but there's also the, the rebuke as if God, Hezekiah is feeling the weight of his failure to trust God previously. And he, he feels now though something else, the weight of humiliation or blasphemy on God because they have belittled the almighty God that he thought he trusted. And he reaches out finally to say, I can't fix this. Give him credit that he finally blubbers out everything. That's where the hope starts. 
And he says, Isaiah, would you please pray for me? I'm out of ideas. A lot of times we don't know what to pray. And we ask others to pray. The other thing is that sometimes when we don't know how to pray, you know that God prays for us? When, when Priscilla and I were on our uh, road trip recently out in New England, we had a neat opportunity to, um, uh, on a Sunday, it just so coincided, I noticed that we're going to be near a church that a classmate of mine from seminary uh, pastors in Massachusetts. And so we, I didn't contact him. In fact, we have not been in contact. He wasn't the kind of friend that, he's not even a Facebook friend, okay? But we knew each other and, and had enjoyed uh, seminary, some classes together. So we surprised him. We room about this size, we just sat back there and listened to the sermon, and afterwards said hello, and he's looking at me. 38 years have passed. Do I know you? <laughs> it was fun. He preached on Romans 8. If you, want a, if you want a passage to be thinking about how to pray when you don't know how to pray, Romans 8, 26 and 27. It says, the Spirit of God in you knows what God's will is, and so when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit of God talks to the Father with groans that words can't express. Sometimes you just pray with a feeling. you got no words. You don't know what to do. Pastor, this, Pastor Jeff was, was sharing about that. And just, this passage just struck me again how powerful that is that God shows his grace when we don't have a clue what to say or what God wants. And in fact, it seems like something like that might actually have happened here because verse 5 says, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Hezekiah to ask him to pray, right? They had this whole list of prayer requests to give him. Isaiah said to them, tell your servant, this is what the Lord says. I don't know if they ever got the words out. Because Hezekiah's heart had already been communicated to God, and God already is waiting with an answer. Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words which have made which, with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put such a spirit in him that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country. And there I will have him cut down with the sword. God says, I'm already guaranteeing I'm going to take care of it. A, he will return to his country, that is, without conquering Jerusalem. And in his own country, he'll be assassinated. We'll find out that doesn't happen immediately, but it's going to happen. But Hezekiah had a little more time in God's waiting room. We've all felt that. At our, the conference we were at in uh, Dallas this past week as pastors, um, the final speaker, Philip Pointer, taught on an interesting passage. He taught on the burial of Christ. And his message, I think, was titled, Don't Skip Saturday, end of Luke 23. They buried him. And then he talks about the faith of the women. Now, I think we all know that the disciples, when they buried Jesus, they were hiding out behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. But the women did something. They did the next thing they knew to do. They were the ones of faith. The women were the ones who spent Saturday preparing spices. 
to anoint the body of their friend Jesus, who was dead. Sure, he had said he would rise, but they weren't, nobody basically remembered that. Dead people don't rise. And then it says this, and they observed the Sabbath according to the law of God. So when they didn't know what God was doing, they just kept doing what God had said they should do. That's, a, that's faith. In other words, if the women could obey God even when Jesus was dead, how much more should we obey God when we know he's alive? He is trustworthy because of the resurrection. He comes through on his promises. Are you living in a Saturday? Stay silent. You don't need to accuse God nor defend him. We wait on him. It seems that all God wanted for Hezekiah was to admit his failure at faith and come in that season of time to say, okay, God, you are the way maker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, not me. So do we trust God or just say that we trust God? God didn't solve the problem immediately, we will find, but he did give them a momentary reprieve, verse 8. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. These are both cities in Judah, the mop-up campaign. And so the messengers leave the wall, their threats, and they, they, they walk away, and they go to the king down there in Libna, and there's more. Now Sennacherib, the king, received a report that Tirhaka, the Cushite king of Egypt, could be Ethiopia, it's probably Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. So there was an, a reprieve because the, 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 the messengers left the wall, and now the king of, of Assyria is actually facing a bigger threat. Egypt was a bigger deal than, than Judah. Judah just kind of stood in the way geographically between the two. And so, so Rabshakeh, go, or the field commander, goes to, to help his king. But before he leaves, he, he, he gives a message. Or rather, after he leaves, he sends back a message, middle of verse 9. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word, and it's all repeat. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard, and he gives a list of all the people they had conquered, you know, where... So Hezekiah gets yet another chance. He's heard another threat. Now he's got it, now he's got it in written form. He gets, a, he gets a letter. What will Hezekiah do this time? Because we've all, we've all been through these ups and downs of trials where we don't know how long it's going to wait, and then, then there's sometimes a temporary reprieve or release, kind of a spiritual ibuprofen, you know, that lets us kind of, okay, we can get through this a little bit more, but... but We'll see some of these answers that God has in mind take decades before they're answered. And I'll bet you just about every adult in the room has had some decades-long issue going on. It, 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 it doesn't all go away. Sometimes God will push the pause button and give us a, give us a break, so to speak. But this was somehow still too soon, and we, so we, we are, we're forced to wait and in that time, yes, our faith is growing, but our emotions don't grow as fast as our faith. I've, I've thought, noticed. I, I, could, 
I can think of some seasons of, of, of worry about different issues and really believing that God has a, a reason and a solution, but my emotions weren't there. So I can still feel stuff at 3 a.m. when I didn't intend to be awake, right? But this is all part of God growing our faith. Even though we know God is trustworthy, we still struggle with, struggle with faith. And, and God's at work during this time. He didn't, he didn't, God didn't check out because we didn't, he didn't see him at work. So what will Hezekiah do this time? Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Creation proves God's in charge. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Now he's beginning to realize what's really at stake is the glory of God, not his own safety or comfort. It is true, O Lord, the Assyrians have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods, into, those other gods, into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by man's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, here it is, so that all the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. This is a transformed Hezekiah. His eyes have been forcibly turned, like, you know, we tell our kids, look at me, to see the sufficiency of God alone. Did you notice back in verse 4, Hezekiah used the pronoun in his prayer request to Isaiah, ask the Lord your God. And now it's verse 19, the Lord, O Lord, our God. And now it's not a request sent to Isaiah, it is Hezekiah and his face before God. You're God over kingdoms, you're the living God. They've got sticks and stones kind of God. But the point is that all the kingdoms may know that you alone are God. He's all about God's glory now. God's glory has become a bigger deal to Hezekiah than his own fear. Which reveals that God, that, that Hezekiah's heart is now more aligned with God's real purposes. When that happens, something changes within us. When our focus is on our fears, we'll be a mess to the degree we're not aligned with God's glory, but when our focus is on God's glory, it's like God can begin to delete kind of line after line of our fears. So verse 20, Isaiah responds, Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. See how God, Isaiah, and Hezekiah in these days have had this, like, this triangle communication thing. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I've heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. And what follows in verses uh, 21 through uh, 28 especially is, is an amazing prophetic psalm or song, probably eventually, in which God speaks to, in the hearing of Hezekiah, so he would know God speaks about actually the pitiful condition of Assyria. Actually, it's Assyria who is in trouble. Do you realize that? Not you. 
Verse 23, you said you got so many chariots. Wrong answer, Assyria. You said I've dug wells in foreign lands. Verse 24, wrong answer. Verse 25, have you not heard? This, this is like a message to Assyria. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In the days of old I planned it, God did. Now I have brought it to pass that you, Assyria, have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people drained of power, dismayed, put to shame. They're like plants. God is revealing that it was in his plan for Assyria to have so much victory. For the enemies of God to have that much fear, uh, victory was God's plan. God ordains our enemies' victories. Doesn't cause them, he allows them. Ordains, that's a good word. He's commenting on, on current events. Do you think God has ordained the outcome of all the elections Tuesday? Amen. 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 Do you think it probably worked toward his, his glory somehow? Yeah. What if, what if God allowed in the coming decades, because we're kind of worried about decades right now, right, sometimes? What if God allowed in the coming decades more godlessness in our nation? for the pur purpose of producing more godliness in his church. What if that happened? Might not God get more glory? We, we're, we're, we pray for our, our will first, but do we know how to submit to God's will and God's glory? Do we pray according to his glory? He knows how to get glory. And by the way, that doesn't mean... God's not going to win in the end. Look at the first word of verse 27. His word to Assyria, but. But I know where you stay and where you come and go and how you rage against me because you rage against me and your insolence has reached my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. So God's going to win. In case you feared that if he, if he waits too long or if he allows... Uh, godlessness to win too much, that somehow that God's fretting. He's not. He's not. We shouldn't sweat what God doesn't sweat. I'm going to put a hook in your nose. And in fact, some of the, the, the sequence of this is a little bit uncertain how this worked historically, but he says, this will be a sign, verse 29, to you, O Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself. The second year what springs from that. But in the third year uh, you sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And, and that's when I'm going to do it. So there's something about, not three years, but so this year the crop is going to be harvested. Maybe there's just a month left. And then all of next year's season, and then somehow the, 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 the planting and maybe the harvesting. So maybe we're talking 18 months, and we're not quite sure how this, the sequence all works, but that's when, that's when I'm going to give you this victory. And, and just know this, end of verse 31, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So you've been way off base, Hezekiah, when you said, I'm going to take gold and silver and buy my victory. The zeal of the Lord will come. In verse 32, they're not going to shoot an arrow here. They're not going to, come a, going to build a siege. Verse 33, by the way he came, he will return. He won't enter this city. I'll defend it for my glory, my sake, and David's sake. So God's promise was absolutely 
secure. What I love about the scripture is we know a lot about good endings. We get to, we get to see from the, the thousand foot view, you know, a little bit how this worked out. That night, whether it's right after the prophecy or after the 18 months, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. It seems probably most likely that this is like first thing. We, we left Sennacherib most recently in, in, in Libna, one of the cities of Judah, 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So assuming that's the sequence before he leaves, some night they, whoever's left in that camp, all 185,000, maybe even more, around Jerusalem, Somebody's alive to, to see that they're all dead. The other ones are all dead. And so some messenger races down to Libna, if that's where he is. And some official has to charge into the royal tent, shake Sennacherib awake, and scream in dismay that there are massive troops that they were counting on around Jerusalem are all dead. And shell-shocked, arrogant Sennacherib slinks home to Nineveh in disgrace. Verse 37, One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sherezer cut him down with the sword, assassinated him, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Ezra Hayden, another son, succeeded him as king. So everything promised back in chapter 19, verse 7, happened. We know historically the assassination really took place. It was really his two sons. It was 20 years later. So there was some, some time delay. It's about time, isn't it, for us to trust God a little more with whatever the current events are. You know, if, if, if the people you vote for win, will you trust more in elections and less in God? And uh, if they don't go like you want, will we fret that somehow God was losing his battles? But on a more personal level, we've all got personal stuff that are stressing and testing us. Most of you know that uh, the pastors were down in Dallas at a great conference last week. Yes, it was amazing. We were, uh, Nate and Michelle uh, went on to, uh, some of you know, to uh, do some vacation time. And so Seth and I were supposed to be flying back on Friday night, Friday afternoon, keywords supposed to be. And uh, so that would work out good because uh, I, I, I kind of depend on Saturday morning to, to finish up my preparation and so forth. You know that storm we had here? If you ever looked at the radar, it went from Dallas to Milwaukee. <laughs> we even checked into renting cars because our flight canceled. And uh, then they, they rerouted us, and this makes so much sense, they rerouted us from Dallas to Phoenix to Milwaukee that night. Picture that. Okay, we'll get home at midnight on Friday night, and that'd be okay. And, and uh, besides that, we could, we could stay with our, my, my, my kids and grandkids. We had that all figured out. And then that flight got an hour later, two hours, not worth it. So we go across the street, get a hotel, and 
stay the night for a 12.30 flight on Saturday, yesterday, to come back. And uh, my sermon's over here, but the beauties of online is found a computer in the hotel foyer and finished doing what I needed to do. And they had a printer, and I printed it. And so on the plane ride yesterday afternoon, I'm, I'm making my final scratches on my notes and uh, I drove from the airport to here for the service. <laughs> God worked it out. Minor stress. You, 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 all, you all have them all the time. Same storm that annoyed and uh, delayed and stressed me. Also hit Oklahoma. And so while I was in the airport in Dallas and grabbing a sandwich at Chick-fil-A before we got on the plane, Chick-fil-A lines are always longer for some reason. I'm sitting there flipping through my phone. Tornado in uh, Idabel, Oklahoma, flattened the church building of my friend and pastor friend from college, Don Meyer, Don and Gala. Trinity Baptist Church, you want to read the story. It's, they were supposed to vote after the service today about completing their addition that was mostly done. They have a pile of rubble. Same storm was a frustration and stress for me. It's a devastation, a major test for Don and Gayla and Trinity Baptist Church. And every one of us is facing either those daily frustrations or one of the big ones. The real question is, will we rely on our resources or God's? And what will be the process? And will we trust the timing of God's process as he grows our faith because he's faithful and because he is actually pouring out his grace to us in those tests of faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in a struggling world. We are struggling sinful people. We believe you are trustworthy while we struggle to trust you. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to grow. Help us to be patient with what you are doing with us. Help us not to believe the self-accusations that Satan would want us to have, that we are somehow spiritually uh, forever deficient. But actually, you're being faithful to pour out your grace and grow our faith the way you desire. And so we do love you. We reaffirm as we gather week by week our trust in you. And we know that you are worthy of our trust and that most importantly we must know you are worthy of your own glory and we want to face our life towards that. In Jesus' name, amen.